When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the opportunity to talk about Getting people to do what is good for their health. Lessons from vaccination. Like you, we are currently flooded with the pervasive news around COVID and vaccination and the requirements for getting that to most segments of the community. Now, you're probably thinking, what's the relevance to osteoarthritis? Well, let me get to that. Despite the numerous guidelines supporting exercise and weight loss and management for osteoarthritis, it's often challenging to implement in day-to-day life. Key actions for that management are often not reaching healthcare providers and patients so that patients don't always receive high-value care. One of the big barriers to behavior change is getting people to start and adhere to a lifestyle intervention. On a systems level, there are major challenges with access to care and communication regarding optimal management. On this episode of Joint Action, particularly in that era affected by COVID, we're joined by Julie Leesk to discuss how we can use and improve behavior change in osteoarthritis and apply learnings from current vaccination strategies. Professor Julie Leesk is a social scientist with qualifications in public health, nursing, and midwifery. Her research focus is immunization uptake, policy programs, controversies, and communication. She applies knowledge 
and methods from psychology, sociology, public health ethics, audience studies, and implementation science. She also undertakes some research and teaching in environmental health risk communication. Julie's been a professor at the University of Sydney's Susan Wakel School of Nursing and Midwifery. Her research over 23 years has focused on social and behavioral aspects of immunization, what people think and do about it, programs and policies. She has a master's of public health and nursing and midwifery qualifications. She's a visiting fellow at the National Center for Immunization Research and Surveillance, where she previously worked for 12 years and set up a social science unit. She currently chairs the World Health Organization Behavioral and Social Drivers of Vaccination Working Group. And in 2019, Julie was the overall winner of the Australian Financial Review 100 Women of Influence Award. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming along. It's a pleasure, David. Yeah, no, it's absolutely our pleasure. And as I intimated in the introduction, it's a topic that's incredibly relevant to everybody in the world at the moment, but I think particularly of relevance to people with osteoarthritis. But before we get into the main content of the show, just wanted to get to know you a little bit better. Can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like? Yeah, so essentially I call myself a social scientist who specialises in vaccination uptake. Uh, and I look also at programs, at policies, and along the way, because I've been doing this kind of research for 24 years now, I've learned a lot about vaccination itself. So having spent 12 years at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, I learned a lot about vaccinology, about clinical trials of vaccination, vaccine safety, the epidemiology of vaccine programs, policy, and so forth, and have done a lot of research across multiple different vaccines, target groups, through a threatened pandemic and a past pandemic in 2009. And so that's kind of my vaccination expertise. I also do quite a lot of work with the World Health Organization in, in, in advising them on their strategies around supporting countries to get high immunization uptake and developing measures of uh, why people don't vaccinate. And prior to that, so I started off my career in nursing and then midwifery. I uh, wanted to be a midwife so I could go and work overseas in developing countries and, and help people. And then I think fairly quickly, about six years in, realised I wasn't quite the right material for that very practical, kind of reasonably stressful kind of job. So I found myself running a health promotion program for pregnant and parenting teenagers who were homeless. So this was in an accommodation service in Eastern Sydney and realised there I needed some theory behind that practice. And it was essentially, even though I didn't have these terms at the time, it was health promotion. So I got really interested in that and um, public health more generally when we were dealing with little lice outbreaks in the facility, for example. So I went and did a Master of Public Health in 1996 at the University of Sydney. Absolutely loved it. And then found my true vocational love, which is research. And uh, essentially, I've been doing that ever since. Absolutely fascinating. And hopefully, we'll get into a little bit about what you described there, particularly as it relates to both health promotion, but also with regards potential policy implications of what we're discussing today and how that might translate 
into the osteoarthritis context as well and really interested in that role that you have at WHO. But before we get there, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? Well, because <laughs> we're in a pandemic and there's a big focus on vaccination and, and behavioural aspects of infectious disease control, a lot of my day job occupies the evenings and weekends as well. But I do love and have always loved to sing. So uh, I trained in opera, as you know, in an amateur way in the 90s. And my brother is a professional opera singer based in Paris. So we've had music around us, um, you know, roles into school musicals. And I was in a jazz quartet. And so I love to sing. And both opera and, and more contemporary style. And I also love being on wheels. So I love to cycle. And when I can, I try to commute a cycle, although that's obviously been really difficult in the last year and a half. And I love roller skating. That was something I did when I was a teenager and, and got really, really good at it. And so occasionally I try to get back on the skates and do a few tricks and things. But obviously it's it's more difficult for someone like me who has osteoarthritis of the knees and it struggles with that. So um, I'm not as fit as I used to be. Oh, we can uh, always work on that. But uh, I, firstly, with regards to the opera, how often do you get an opportunity to use that as an outlet? How often do you get an opportunity to sing? Not much now. Uh, when I was in the jazz quartet just a few years ago, we'd have weekly rehearsals. And I loved that because it, it uses a very different part of your brain to academic work, I think, unless you're in a very creative field in academia. I mean, nowadays I, you know, I, I lead the singing at church if we have church. And, in fact, a friend and I wrote a song uh, called Waiting for a New Vaccine last July in relation to waiting for a COVID vaccine. And we wrote it, recorded it, and we actually, it ended up being played on breakfast radio for a while there. So that was fun. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've seen a little bit of social media around, floating around now, just trying to improve messaging around vaccines and using, I think, popular songs and rephrasing some of the lyrics. It's a very creative way to hopefully get people along for the journey. Now, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Uh, five words. I only had one. <laughs> One's fine. So, uh, no, I'll give you five. So enthusiastic is number one, right? That is one of my major drivers. Curious is number two. Passionate, emotional, and when I'm trying, I can be wise. You sound like you're wise most of the time. <laughs> but I must admit, listening to the description you were giving before and the work that you're currently doing, I would have thought in large part there's a big altruistic freak there as well, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. And it's what drove my career choices to begin with. And it still drives me. So, you know, I have been reflecting on this a bit lately because a lot of my work at the moment is agreeing to do media interviews. And I've done about 280 or more since the beginning of last year and that is very time consuming and yet I feel compelled to do it and I've been reflecting on the motivations around that and I think uh, there's a number of them but one is that when you have all this knowledge and the Australian public the taxpayer has invested in that knowledge we have an obligation to give back to people and 
that knowledge can help people now because you can provide as much as possible a reasonable and balanced commentary. You can try to speak the truth. You can uh, share with people what you know and try to communicate that well. And there's a huge need for that right now. Well, we're going to tap into that altruistic space and uh, hopefully suck out some of your knowledge and use that for uh, the purposes of helping people out there who have osteoarthritis. So the main content of today is what we'll get into now. But I just wonder, before we get into the, the main questions I really want to ask, I just wanted to, to get a sense of what are the main factors that influence health behavior and are there particular models out there that might help to provide a useful framework before we get into the main content? Yeah, this, is, this has been a real, a very interesting question for me because I mean, I've always known as a behavioural researcher about different models, like the health belief model and so forth. And many of them haven't been quite adequate, in my view, to explain behaviour around vaccination because they're very focused on how people think about health behaviours and their attitudes and motivations. But in recent years, I've come upon a model that I like to use. It's not the only one, but it's the... COM-B model, which is, um, stand, says that for people to be able to act in a certain way, right, the behaviour might be persistent exercise for people who suffer osteoarthritis or it might be eating a balanced diet or it might be getting your children or yourself vaccinated. They need to, first of all, have the capability, right, they have the physical capability and the psychological, the knowledge, the training and skills to be able to do that. Secondly, they need to have the motivation. And that might be the way you think about something, your attitudes to it, but it also might be your habits because they're more sort of snap judgments and internalised fast motivations, the fast part of the brain rather than the slower rational part. And then there's the opportunity. So we've got capability, motivation and opportunity. And opportunity is the physical resources around you to enable you to act in that way. So with exercise, for example, you know, having footpaths that make it easier to walk or having cycle paths that feel safe, which is a very pertinent thing for me or having the resources in place to enable you to access that healthy behaviour. And then the final part of opportunity is the social opportunity. So there are the sort of social norms and ways in which others might affect our behaviour because we see what others are doing or we we hear what others think we should do. That's brilliant and a fantastic explanation. And I think a really useful framework for the rest of the conversation we're going to have. Uh, from the perspective of vaccination, obviously, this is really front and centre in our mind, and there's been a number of protests happening recently around people expressing their desire for freedom and, you know, the, the feel that they're necessarily being driven by constraints by politicians and health bureaucrats and others. And I guess their perception is one of more sticks than carrots. But from your research and vaccination, what are the main barriers to vaccination what have you found works best to influence uptake yeah i sort of see those as two distinct questions so one is figuring out what the big sort of drivers and factors that affect vaccination 
And the second is what actually works to improve uptake. Sometimes it's really interesting to look, first of all, at what works to improve uptake to, to give you a signal of what the biggest barriers might be. Uh, but anyway, let's start with the things that drive vaccination uptake. So in our work with WHO, we've been um, influenced by a lot of models, but we've had to sort of look at the, re- the primary research on vaccination, what people will tell you in an interview about why their child or they themselves are not vaccinated. Bring all that together and try to blend it with a model. So we think of this in terms of the way people think and feel about vaccination, their belief in the benefits of it, their confidence in the safety of vaccines, their trust in the system. We also think about the social influences and how community leaders in some countries, religious leaders in particular, might have a big role to play. Also, we think about that in terms of gender equity in under that social influence banner. So in some um, settings, women don't have a lot of autonomy to be able to travel or decide to take their child for vaccination even. So they're kind of relying on permission from a male in the household. Um, and then uh, the third part is the practical issues that affect vaccination uptake. So that's In that COM-B model I described before, that's kind of like the physical opportunity. So here we're thinking about knowing where, when and how you can get your vaccination appointment, having the resources to be able to get there, uh, having clinic hours that are very convenient and um, having a clinic that treats you well so you want to go back when you need your booster. And all of those things are influential in getting people vaccinated. But in terms of strategies to improve uptake, the evidence says that things work across multiple layers. So you need policies that, you know, in some places um, requirements to vaccinate can make quite a big difference, but you can't bring those in without making sure there's good access to vaccination first and that they need to be brought in in a way that's careful and ethical and proportionate. In other words, it's really needed (laughs) to protect other people. But the second thing is that at an organisational level, if you think about primary care and the, the health professionals who are giving vaccines, the nurses, the doctors, the Aboriginal medical workers and so forth, pharmacists now in, you know, with the COVID vaccine, They need to be well-trained. They need to know when a vaccine is recommended for somebody and when it's not recommended. And sometimes those, what we call the wrong, not recommended beliefs come into it. So you might be told, for example, you can't have a vaccine if you've got this particular condition when that's actually not the case. And that's a matter of making sure that health professionals are well-educated so people who are eligible for a vaccine and can have it can get it. And then at the individual level, things like incentives, reminders can also work as well. And really interesting stuff coming out of the US now around how to remind people, how to incentivize them because the detail matters there. And, you know, things like, you know, we hear a lot about nudges. So an SMS reminder that also tells you that if you're a young person vaccinating, it's not just going to protect you from COVID going to help protect your loved ones because you're much less likely to pass COVID on to them and those things can also work as well. 
It's a fantastic description. And now what I want to do is to, I guess, use a lot of the helpful language and framework that you've just described as it relates to vaccination and try and translate that into osteoarthritis context. And, you know, obviously wearing your hat as someone who's engaged in health promotion, behavioral science, but also someone who has osteoarthritis. If I want to really oversimplify things as far as osteoarthritis is concerned, you know, the core treatments that we have for the management of this disease really are about getting people to be more active, if they've got muscle weakness, to make them stronger, if they're above a healthy weight, to get them to lose weight and to educate them about the disease. From the perspective of what you were just describing, as it relates to vaccination, how can you translate that type of framework into the osteoarthritis space? And I, I guess I'm particularly interested in the latter part of what you were just talking about there, particularly as it relates to incentives and nudges and trying to do things that might be small incremental changes, but at a large population level. So it actually leads to a large effect. Yeah, this is a, a good question. And, and I'll say, you know, my knowledge here is limited to having that personal perspective as a patient more so than a professional who studies this. So I know you've got other great podcasts where people have reflected on these things as well, David, and I recommend that people listen to those as well. But I think that motivation, so if you think about it from the clinician's perspective, one of their big tasks is to get a patient to, first of all, to understand their disease and not just see it as something that will defeat them and help them with their mental approaches to pain as well as physical treatment for pain. And the other is to sort of, I, I love that um, previous podcast, Samantha was talking about that sort of strengths-based approach where you focus on what the body can do and not so much what it can't do because physical activity is still important. So I think helping people who are ambivalent about doing what's needed, losing weight, doing exercise, is similar to the idea of helping people who are hesitant about vaccination and not sure whether they, in this case, want to vaccinate, whereas in OA it's more can and it's a belief in your ability to do things, whereas with vaccination, it's, a, it's often a fear of vaccine side effects. Yeah, oftentimes I think for osteoarthritis, it's also a fear of activity. So people are concerned as soon as they move that it's going to hurt. Um, and, it, you know, I think potentially as a consequence of that, it discourages their activity and it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle that they become you know, more deconditioned and lose strength and that perpetuates the same cycle. And that, that's influenced by the mindset around it, isn't it? That if you're sort of discursive environment, in other words, the conversations you hear around you, the, the words that are used by clinicians, the media talk about having a knee problem or, or another a hip problem or whatever, means that if, you know, you have pain, you, you limit your activity rather than carefully keep your activity going, then that will influence your foundational beliefs. Like, you know, I talked earlier about the automatic motivation, snap judgments, the, the core sort of thoughts, the very automatic thoughts we have about illness and what we should do about it. So I agree that can be a major barrier. And just simply informing people, even sensitising them to those unhelpful thinking patterns, I think is a great thing for clinicians to do, along with helping them to, you know, change their behaviour, i.e. 
do more exercise and lose weight if that's what is needed for them. And that, you know, I think is where things like motivational interviewing or other behaviour change counselling techniques can be incredibly helpful and have a good evidence base behind them as well. Just expanding a little bit on the incentives and nudge that have worked in vaccination and potentially as it relates to getting people to be more active or to lose weight, what have you seen that's worked in the behavioural science space that potentially might be able to be translated into osteoarthritis? We're starting to see a little bit of this that's motivated in part by the health funds and people wearing wearables and tracking activity, but just wondering if you had any thoughts about things that may work in this space. Yeah, so I think the policy context has to make it possible for people to access the things they need for behaviour change. So if it's a specialised intensive exercise regime, you know, can they, if they live in a poorer part of the city, access that? If they have limited means, how much do they have to pay for that? All of those things will, those resources, the social determinants of health will affect people's ability to take on those kind of specialised, very helpful evidence-based exercise regimes that are tailored. But in terms of incentives, you know, some of the the interesting things that we've learned in vaccination are that default appointments can work. So if you say to somebody, you are um, booked for a vaccination at this clinic within the next week, then people will have a sense of ownership over that vaccine for them. And and they'll also be, you know, I think feel that greater sense of obligation, like there's a spot for me, I better take it. Well, that'll work with me. (laughs) So, So things like that might be useful nudges that in the right supportive environment where you have the financial means, the geographical means to do your exercise program, you also have the behavioural nudges that just move you along if you're on the fence slightly. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great idea. And, you know, I, I, not to diminish the importance of the financial barriers here, because I think a lot of, for a lot of people that have osteoarthritis, unfortunately, Medicare reimburses the sort of high ticket expensive items, you know, whether that be around MRIs, arthroscopies, which won't necessarily meaningfully benefit a person's care, but they don't adequately reimburse for things that we know are beneficial here, particularly as it relates to helping people uh, with exercise and losing weight and other things that are that are oftentimes more challenging to access yeah yeah wouldn't it be good to have a a pharmaceutical benefits scheme for non-pharmaceutical interventions that work exactly exactly now julie one of the huge challenges i'm sure you're facing at the moment is some of the mixed messaging that's happening about vaccination and particularly in australia some of the discouraging messaging that we've been hearing about AstraZeneca, which I think is slowly starting to to be reversed. And, you know, some of the misinformation that's going on out there about the need for this and the fact that it doesn't affect young people and, you know, some of the social responsibilities being set aside by some of the more liberal philosophers like Alan Jones in our community. But in the context of osteoarthritis, we know that there's also a lot of misinformation being spread, you know, about the role of things like opioids, which we know shouldn't have a role, glucosamine, which is pervasively used supplement, but again, probably no benefit over and above a placebo. And similarly, arthroscopy and surgery, which is still widely done for knee osteoarthritis, but but again, it's no better than 
a sham procedure. And similarly, you know, messaging around the fact that, you know, total joint replacement and osteoarthritis is likely an inevitable end part of your journey once you've got osteoarthritis. So there's a lot of misinformation and myths that get, that get spread. How do we get health professionals to start, I guess, providing better evidence and better communication around what they're saying to patients to positively influence beliefs and actions? And do you have any strategies that we could adopt that may be helpful here? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it requires the health professionals to have that knowledge. Going back to that COMB model, it have the psychological capability. In other words, the knowledge about when a vaccine is recommended, correct, you know, administration, injection technique, when people shouldn't have a vaccine, which is a really small number of instances where they're truly medically contraindicated. All of those things make a difference. And it's been a great privilege over the last 20 years for me to be part of vaccination updates, which educate mostly nurses and GPs around vaccination and I focus on sort of the having conversations with patients. But knowledge is essential because if you feel like a deer in the headlights when you're presented with a question like, you know, I have had a DVT in the past, a leg clot in the past, so I don't think I can have the AstraZeneca vaccine, and you're not really sure if that's true or not, then your doubt will possibly cue hesitancy on your patient. So knowledge is essential, but on its own, it's not enough. And particularly when people are hesitant, what we've done in immunisation is to sort of look at the typical what we call scripts that a clinician will bring in when someone's hesitant, like how they talk to someone who refuses to vaccinate or who's very unsure about whether they should vaccinate, they're hesitant, they're on the fence, or someone who just has a few questions And we've looked at those scripts and we've picked out the the strengths, the good bits, and we've critiqued the less helpful bits and brought those into a package of resources, tips and information around childhood vaccination called SKY, sharing knowledge about immunisation. And one of the things we did there was to record conversations between clinicians in a specialist immunisation service and hesitant parents to look at how they negotiated these very often quite lengthy, complex consultations and what strengths and weaknesses there were in those conversations. We noticed that these clinicians were excellent. They had the time, of course, which mostly is not the case, where they could really get into the child's history. They might have had a serious side effect from a vaccine or worried that something was a serious side effect. It might not have been. And they then sort of talked with them and, and we saw these patterns. And what we ended up doing through that research is taking these morsels of morsels of excellent techniques and bringing in like adding a dash of behavior change communication science to the mix and coming up with this approach which is particularly for when someone's hesitant about vaccination where you first of all elicit their questions and concerns you hear them through as much as is possible in the time frame, but you elicit to saturation. So you say, do you have some other concerns? And often it's those 
ones you get towards the end of that process, which are the biggest ones, but the patient might have not felt confident or or you might not have quite had the rapport to share those concerns at the beginning. So maybe in knee osteoarthritis, you know, I'm thinking as a patient here, what do you see as the biggest barriers to you doing this weight loss regime and more exercise? And in motivational interviewing, we call that rolling with resistance because what you don't want to do is just sort of jump right in and what they call the writing reflex, which is to hear something that you know is wrong. Someone's saying something wrong about vaccines or their arthritis or whatever, and you want to jump in and correct them straight away because then you get stuck down that rabbit hole and it might even become a debate, particularly if it's about vaccination. So eliciting to saturation, if possible, setting an agenda for the conversation. So it sounds like your concerns are X, Y and Z. We've got 10 minutes today in primary care or we've got another 20 in specialist care. Let's focus on concern number one. How does that sound, right? That's your agenda setting. The patient can go, well, actually, no, it's the third one that I most want to talk about or whatever. And then you share your knowledge, right? And by then you've got the rapport. The patient feels validated because they've been heard. You've heard all their questions and concerns potentially And you may even know what their intentions are now, what the massive barriers for them are. So your your knowledge and your recommendations are much more likely to meet where they're actually at. And then this is what is a key feature of motivational interviewing, where you elicit change talk, right? So Change talk is where you want to get someone from not vaccinating to thinking about vaccinating or from not exercising enough to thinking about going on that new regime of exercise and sticking with it. And the change talk might be, it sounds like you really want to go walking in the snowy mountains at Christmas. Yeah, I think that's realistic. I think you can do that. Let's work on a plan to help you get there because that's a great goal to have. So that's amplifying existing motivation that you've elicited from the patient through good listening and then working with the things that might be barriers to produce a realistic set of recommendations for them. Vaccination, it might be, look, at the next time we meet, let's consider maybe starting with one vaccine for your child, the one that you're concerned about, the meningitis. Or with the OA, it might be, let's think about how you can go and go for that bike ride every morning that's realistic and it's not quite the full, you know, exercise regime that just feels impossible at that time for that person. Julie, that's a superb description and I think a really useful framework for both clinicians who are out there listening and thinking about how do I best operationalize this in my clinical practice but also hopefully for patients trying to foster communication that may be productive for them longer term as well. I mean, from the perspective of clinicians, obviously, the key thing there is probably learning about skills around motivational interviewing. But for someone like myself, as I was reflecting on what you're saying, I think another key element is a resource that will provide helpful tips, communication messages, short little Uh, vignettes of what may be problematic versus what is ideal and providing that as an educational resource so that people can move forward. And, uh, you know, it's from the perspective of listeners out there, if anybody hasn't listened to 
Samantha Bonsley's podcast, please do so, because I think that's potentially a useful reframing podcast about problematic discourse to more participatory discourse and types of language that we're trying to use, or at least encouraging people to use, that may be more inducive to longer-term activities. Now, Julie, are there any other elements there that you'd like to talk about, either from the perspective of personal experience, from the viewpoint of thinking with your behavioral science hat on, how can I best adapt what I've learned here into the osteoarthritis space? Yeah, it's a great question, David, because, you know, as we've already discussed, you happen to be my knee doctor, as I say. I can see that you're, you know, interested in hearing about this, but also have, like a lot of clinicians, an existing suite of excellent communication skills that make you a good doctor. And, you know, I say that from personal experience. We've had two encounters over the last, what, five years. And I just, I just remember thinking after those encounters when this is when we were all developing these strategies around vaccination and I was learning a lot about motivational interviewing in particular, thinking the sorts of conversations that many clinicians like you will have, particularly for physicians, are conversations where you're wanting to help a patient manage their disease well so that they don't have to necessarily have the kind of knee replacement within however many years that they can extend that for as long as possible or whatever outcomes are important. And because behaviour change actually is really, really important, I was thinking more generally that motivational interviewing techniques might help, particularly where there are barriers to change. So, for example, for me, the idea of doing this sort of however many hours a week regime at a place that's very difficult to get to on the North Shore is impossible. So what? let's think about something that's realistic. And the, the idea of drinking milkshakes is just, you know, for lunch is just awful. So let's think about something that might work with that resistance in me. So I think, you know, reflecting on that as someone with OA, but also knowing that what you taught me from your knowledge that you imparted to me about the disease is that the way you experience pain can be affected by how you think about pain and your attitude to it. So that helped me to think I can still exercise. I don't have to be inert just because I've got knee pain, which can be pretty unpredictable at times and bad enough to, you know, need a walking stick on a bushwalk or um, hold the railing walking down the station steps and that I'm just going to continue on and I'm going to try and have a good attitude to that pain because obviously attitude's not everything and pain is a real felt thing, but it can help you manage pain as well. And just also the hope that there's a way for me to try to reduce the, to, to limit the progression of the joint problem. Yeah, it's really helpful. And I think also a helpful reflection for me as well, because I think a lot of the time, as you mentioned before, and whether this is the, you know, time constraints of the clinical environment, the fact that you've got 50 thoughts going on in your head at once, and not necessarily all necessarily focused on the interaction at hand. I think a lot of the time, someone like myself may not necessarily be picking up on the, the important cues the barriers, as you refer to them, that we should be listening to. And I think when we're trying to create treatment plans and particularly useful strategies and work in a partnered way around 
goal setting, if we're not listening to the barriers that are real for that person, whether, you know, whether it be the geographic access to the treatment center or the aversion to um, meal replacements, then that's not going to help. So no, it's a really helpful dialogue and I, I appreciate the opportunity to reflect on it. Thank you for being reflective. I think that's um, also an additional excellent quality in a, a good doctor like you. I appreciate the accolade, Julie. We've all got things to work on. So I'm, I'm going to sit here in my humble chair and move on to the next segment, if that's all right with you. But I guess before we get there, though, are there any helpful resources that you think might be applicable in this context that you could point people towards? Yes. Uh, look, you know, if you were just to Google motivational interviewing BMJ, there's a great article there by um, the leading thinkers in this field, Stephen Rolnick, who's one of the originators of the ideas. If you're interested in the work that we've done around vaccination, then you can go to the Sharing Knowledge About Immunisation website. Now, we've got two. One's a parent-facing one. Uh, for parents, you know, whose children are due, babies are due for their vaccines to give them information. And that's talking about immunisation.org.au. And I, th- I guess we can provide the links on the information about the podcast. But there's also one for health professionals, or we call them immunisation providers. And that includes some of these tips that we've put together over many years of research with health professionals themselves. So that's providers.talkingaboutimmunisation.org.au. Brilliant, Julie. And what I'll do is I'll include a link to those particular sites in the show notes so that people can access them readily. All right. Now, moving on, we're going to move into the rapid fire round. So as, as it's described, this is meant to be rapid responses. So favourite book? Wizard of Earthsea. It's the first in the um, Ursula Le Guin Earthsea trilogy. Wonderful. Favourite movie? I like all the Miyazaki movies, so Studio Ghibli, um, but my favourite is Howl's Moving Castle, which is an animated, brilliant animated series of movies, and, and as they usually have, the main hero character is a young female. <laughs> Wonderful. A dog or a cat person? Cat person, but aspirational dog person, but no pets at the moment. Favourite quote? I really like the serenity prayer. It goes like this. So it's, a, it's very helpful at the moment when, you know, there's a lot happening and you feel a sense of responsibility. <laughs> so it's grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I think we could all use a strong dose of that right now. What's your favourite food? I really like mint slices. <laughs> but there's, there's lots of things, but I've, mint slices came to mind because we've got some in the cupboard. Lovely. Now, where would you next like to go on holiday, COVID aside? <laughs> Look, you know, my, my favourite holidays are often just going to a family holiday house down near Mittagong in the bush. But I lately I've been dreaming about Corfu. <laughs> Because I've been watching the, the Durrells on the telly and that's set in Corfu and that looks fabulous. Now, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? I don't know. I'd love to. <laughs> this is probably not quite the right answer, but I'd love to be a fly on the wall at some of those government meetings where they're devising vaccine strategy. Some of the interactions that have happened at the WHO between them and some of the government bodies over the last year would have been fascinating to watch as well. 
Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Now, if you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, gee, you know, I think Nelson Mandela was pretty amazing. I, I liked his leadership style, so him. Uh, he's a great role model. Now, what would you do if money wasn't an issue? Become a philanthropist and fund research in the social and behavioural elements of public health. It's interesting because, you know, I think the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is starting to get a little bit more into that space, but probably not as much as they have or not as much as they could. Yes, they, they certainly are. And the good thing is they're supporting the global agencies with this. So, you know, some of the work that we've been doing with WHO has been indirectly supported by the Gates Foundation. But in Australia, to keep people in the field, even in vaccine uptake research, to keep people, to maintain that corporate memory that's so valuable to us now is very difficult because it's almost impossible to get fellowships, to get your research funded. It's not the bright, shiny technologies. It's not the biomedical research with the lab coats. And I know we all face struggles getting research funding, but they're even harder if you're in this cross-disciplinary field. Yeah, it's, I think, as you say, it's a perennial challenge and something that's pervasive in osteoarthritis as well as maintaining capacity amongst good people in the field, uh, particularly as yeah. increasing funding challenges continue to loom and threaten. Now, just a couple of closing questions. Why do you do what you do? What motivates you? I like to be able to serve and help people. And I know that this field of research, looking at what um, helps people to vaccinate or making sure that vaccination programs have good process around them, that is a, a field that's very applied, that's very practical, that's intellectually interesting as well because it's got so many dimensions to it in terms of epidemiology, ethics and so forth. So I think it's mostly, it's, it's mostly that. It's connected to the things I said earlier on, the enthusiasm, the curiosity and the desire to help others. Brilliant. Now, if there's one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people out there who have osteoarthritis, what would it be? I think the advice you gave me, David, was helpful. So you can at least try to change to alter your outcomes potentially, depending on what your situation is. So for me, it would have, you know, it was and it still is losing weight and exercising more. Now, I haven't been successful at that, but I know what I need to do, which is important. And pain management is also, it's real, but it's also about how we think about pain that helps us manage it. And I think also trying not to be defeatist about your condition, but to focus on strengths and to not let your condition run your life. And that's a wonderful, positive way to conclude a, a tremendous conversation. So, Julie, thank you so very much for your insights, your time, your intelligence. It's been wonderful to have a chance to have a chat to you. You're very welcome. I've really enjoyed it. Now, I know you're probably completely flooded with COVID information and it becomes a little bit overwhelming at times. But I think in times like this, it's useful to use cross-fertilization and knowledge from other fields and potentially use that to apply to our own. I'm hoping you found today's episode useful, particularly when we're providing that discourse around barriers and potential incentives and nudge strategies that might work in the context 
of osteoarthritis. I'm thinking that for a lot of clinicians that are out there, that motivational interviewing discourse may also be helpful in addition to conversations about improving our communication methodology. As always, really and truly appreciative of the opportunity you give me to listen to this particular podcast and really looking forward to continuing to interact with you. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.